Hey folks, you're listening to To Know The Land. My name is Byron. The show is about people's connections to land base and how we live with the land, how we learn from the land. And I guess generally broad strokes towards a culture of resilience, resistance, and reverence for the land. Right now, you might be able to hear it in the background. I'm in a, an unnamed woods, an unnamed part of town with a river flowing by. And it's a beautiful spot. This is the second time I've been here this week. The first time the record button didn't work. So I wanted to come back here and record the show again. Um, but why I came here the first time and why another reason why I came back was there was some plants here that I don't know that well. They're common plants, but they grow in specific times of year. Later in the summer, around now, they're August, they're, they're flowering. And they don't grow that, that much around because I think they need a pretty rich woods to to do their trick and the plant is uh, I guess the family is Prenanthes rattlesnake roots and they're about well let me read the description from Newcombs flower heads about half an inch long bell-shaped usually nodding whitish cream colored or pinkish flowers the leaves vary from divided to remotely toothed. Tall white lettuce has five or six rays, late summer and fall, in the composite family. So I noticed this flower because the leaves were deeply lobed, quite beautifully deeply lobed. And I thought it just, wow, you know, caught my eye. It reminded me a little bit of a bloodroot flower, but more sharp. Somewhere between a bloodroot and an angelica leaf. Yeah, I think I said a bloodroot flower, but more sharp uh, leaf. Somewhere between a bloodroot leaf and an angelica leaf. Um, I measured one of the basil leaves, and it was about nine inches long. Didn't measure how wide. And I think the species I found here was Prenanthes alba. It's a fairly common species to woods and thickets. Uh, yeah, Prenanthes alba, if you want to look it up. But it was a beautiful flower. When I came on Tuesday, it wasn't flowering yet. The flower capsules were like still closed, but it seemed almost ready and today when I came one was flowering one little flower head amongst many flowering flower heads and amongst many individual plants so I, I consider myself grateful to get to come back in time to see one flower it's such a gift to come back and just get to see that one and sort of study and sit with that plant for a little while 
been using a field manual Michigan flora to try and key out some things lately and struggling with it but in time I've been feeling like my shows have been a lot about science lately and pretty scientific focus. And I wanted to offer a different kind of science or maybe a different kind of focus for this episode. And I wanted to think about stories. I know I talk a lot about stories on the show but I think that's a different way of sharing knowledge about the land. Western science embodies a lot of awe and wonder and a lot of questions, but also a lot of hard facts, even when it acknowledges that hard facts can only take you so far. But it's not open and it doesn't feel as as fluid as the land itself. I've been coming across that problem over the past couple of days trying to ID specific goldenrod species. They aren't coming across as Uh, fluid or acknowledging the overlaps and the discrepancies between these goldenrods. And I guess I'm looking, when I see these goldenrods, I'm seeing possible signs of hybridization of two different species coming together to create a new species or, or maybe less so a new species, but a new offspring with characteristics of both species that may in time go on to create create new species. And what I like about storytelling is it's much more dynamic than science. Science can adjust to change, and that's part of its role. Is it, that's what it does, is it propels change. Constantly revisiting and reassessing and revisiting and reassessing, peer review. But I think that the storytelling is a little bit more dynamic than that. It can change on the fly, it changes with every teller. But the story essentially stay the same and it's often informed by our experiences of that I'm going to get back to stories in a second but something else that's happened a lot or I've heard stories of on the land is people telling stories about how they write songs sometimes songs come to them spontaneously and it's as if they've described it as sort of catching the song. You know, like they felt like they were just sitting there 
maybe not struggling through anything, maybe not even paying attention to the song, maybe watching something else, and then all of a sudden, the song comes. And then all of a sudden, the song comes. And I've had that experience before. And sometimes people describe this experience as not that they wrote the song, but they caught it, that the land gave it to them. That the forest that they're sitting with sort of gave it to them. I don't know what a Western framework, I don't have the words to say it within a Western framework. And maybe the Western framework has forgotten the words to say it. And maybe it's thought because we don't have the words anymore that it never existed. But I don't think that's true. Because it doesn't feel right. I think that my ancestor probably had a great connection with the land base. Understood the, the movements of rivers and waves and tides. Knew how to fish. Knew how to hunt. They had to. There's no doubt. Like our, our my ancestors had to know those skills, or they would have died. And I think they knew those skills by observation, but also by listening. And what is observation? It's listening to the land, tell its stories. Stories don't always come with words, or maybe they're different kinds of words. I've talked on the show about bird song and the language of birds and how birds speak with their different songs their varied songs we have different kinds of songs for different kinds of things that the birds are experiencing i think many of us are accustomed to the bird's song that's the song that they're singing to each other when they're, they're marking off their territories, or they're trying to attract mates. Maybe a cardinal song might be something like... Or something like... Dorito, 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 Dorito. And with that song, they're defending their territory, they're marking it out, they're staking it out, and they're trying to attract a mate. And then there's companion calls once they do have a mate. And for a cardinal, again, that might be a chip. And then the other one will go chip, 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 chip. It's sort of like a codependent checking in that the birds do to make sure each other are safe. Then there's uh, maybe territorial aggression, sometimes called male-to-male -male aggression, but sometimes it's the females, depending on the bird, that will engage in this sort of territorial aggression. And that's like a bunch of calling and noises um, all over the place. I'm not sure if I've ever seen this yet with a cardinal, but they're sort of challenging other cardinal males that might be in the area. and saying, you know, get out of my territory. Another call, or another, another uh, vocalization that the birds have 
again is the juvenile begging the calling that the juveniles do to the adults to the parents for food you might have experienced this with your children that the kids are always like I'm hungry 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 and you hear this in the spring or in the summer early summer you hear this I remember standing in a line outside the grocery store everybody six feet apart and we just happened to be under another sign where some house sparrows were or no pardon me eastern starlings there, there were European starlings not eastern European starlings were were nesting and there were some juveniles in there calling and calling and calling and a parent came in with some food and then took off again and then they started calling and calling and calling and a parent came in with some food and then they took off again and I imagine they just kept calling and calling and calling and that's what the juveniles do so that's another vocalization and then finally you have maybe alarm calls and these alarm calls are just um, for the cardinal it sounds a lot like the companion call but it's faster and probably a higher pitch there. Um, for chickadees, a common one, they're named after it. Chickadee dee dee, chickadee dee dee, and then if the alarm is a bigger alarm, like maybe the cat is really close, it's chickadee dee 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 dee, chickadee dee 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 dee, chickadee dee dee. The the D's will go up more D's the bigger the alarm. And I had that experience with me walking through some car, some chickadees before. My alarm call was big and then it faded as I left. And what I'm getting at with all of this is that there's language that doesn't take words to communicate. And we can know these languages and we've known these languages. My ancestors knew these languages. Your ancestors knew these languages or else you wouldn't be here. I think storytelling can be a way of expressing language and turning it into something else, like poetry. And we can turn it into gifts with our, with our words, with our intention. And I've been trying to do this lately. I've been trying to turn my language into gifts as presents for the land and, and those living on the land that I'm encountering. And one of those groups of beings that I've been encountering a lot lately has been snakes. And I used to be so afraid of snakes. I used to have nightmares of them. Um, I guess more often afraid in my sleep than in waking life, but I used to be so afraid I'd, I'd lash out, I'd, I'd be punching at nothing wake myself up screaming um, but in time that's, that's dissipated as I've got to know more and more snakes and as I've come to appreciate them get close to them take photos of them hang out with them generally and lately as I've been telling them stories 
And what that looks like is just walking through the woods. Recently, I was over by Starkey Hill, and I was walking through the trails there. And I came across a garter snake coiled up just off the trail. And I was actually looking at some wild leek uh, flowers that had gone to fruit. And then bent down to look at them and saw just set off the trail was a coiled, coiled garter. And I asked the garter, can I take your photo? And would you like to hear a story? The snake didn't move, so I got low, sat down, took some photos. Some of them really turned out well. And then told a story to the snake. And it was kind of disjointed. I'm not used to telling this story, but it's actually a story about snakes. And it's a story about snakes giving people language to know the animals. The snakes offering a gift to people to understand the, the habits and patterns and frequencies of the animals around them. Much to the reward of the people who are given this gift. And I, I shared that with the snake, and it went well. And then, perhaps more recently, I was at a work meeting, and we were leaving, and someone noticed a black snake. And it went under a log, and I got really excited, and I pulled out a stick, I was poking at you know, that spot under the log where the snake went through, and I was like, oh, Byron, this is a terrible idea. What are you doing, poking a snake with a stick? So I stopped, my friends left. I stayed there by myself, 20 minutes maybe, not long. And then the snake emerged. And when they came out, they, kept, they stuck their head out slowly. And I began telling them the story. Once, there was a young girl. She lived far, far to the east. Might have been a short time ago, might have been a long time ago. But this young girl lived with her grandmother, for her parents had passed away. They lived, as all young girls and stories do, lived on the edge of a forest. And there in that forest, the young girl would harvest the mushrooms her grandmother taught her, would harvest the geese that would fly down to the river every fall. One day while she was out with her basket and her harvesting knife, the young girl sat down and fell asleep 
under a tall tree. When she awoke, it was getting late and getting dark. And she stood up to head back home. And when she did, the ground opened up below her. And she fell in to a deep, dark pit. It took a second for the young girl's eyes to adjust to the darkness in the pit. But when they did, she was afraid. Seemingly all around her were hundreds and hundreds of writhing, slithering, crawling snakes entwined within each other, tumbling over themselves, wrestling with each other. The young girl was afraid. She felt behind her for a wall and she crawled up to that wall and she had her back to that wall and she stared out across the dark pit. The tumult of snakes in front of her. As the dark wore on, there soon came a sliver of light reflected in a pool in the middle of the pit. It was the moon rising over the edge of the pit high above her. And in the light's reflection, she could see the snakes coming towards the, the pool in the middle of the pit, this puddle, and lapping at the water there. It appeared they were staring at her as they looked at the moon's reflection in the pool. The young girl was afraid. She was afraid and she was hungry. She stared at the snakes, the snakes stared at her. And it seemed as though a rift parted in the snakes and from this rift emerged a larger snake, a longer snake with dark purple eyes. And the odd thing about the snake were the two horns emerging from just behind the eyes. And the odder thing about the snake was as she slithered through the hordes of snakes and came towards the girl. She reared up and she spoke. Young girl, do not be afraid. Come, drink from our fountain.
and you will be full. Now the young girl was afraid, but she was hungry. And people do a lot when they're hungry. They overcome their fear quick. And she cautiously bent, but she bent and she licked from that pool, rippling the moon's image. And in time she was full. Slowly, the young girl leaned back against the wall of the pit. And the horned mother of snakes came closer. Young girl, will you stay with us a while? We will teach you. We will teach you the language of all green plants. Listen. Listen to our stories. We will teach you. Near frozen with fear, the young girl struggled a nod. And so began a night of stories. And the horned mother of snake curled around all the rest of them, orated over the spring in the middle, the puddle in the middle reflecting the moon's light as she told the snakes the stories of the plants. The young girl overheard every story Every legend, every bit of lore passed from that snake's tongue out into the world. Now, I couldn't tell you if it was a short time or a long time, but one day when that young girl had become a young woman, The horned mother of snakes emerged from the back of the pit through a rift in the rising mass, through the moon's fountain and towards the girl. Young woman, it's time for you to go. Do not tell anyone of what you've learned here. Use your knowledge as you may. But if you tell anyone the knowledge of the green plants that you've learned here, it will be gone. Any time the horned mother of snakes spoke to the young woman, she nodded. And when she nodded, all the snakes slithered forward and formed themselves into a ladder so the young woman might emerge from the pit.
and when she crawled out she crawled forward into the forest and passed out in exhaustion she woke up leaning against the base of a tree her knife and collecting basket beside her but didn't the knife appear a little bit rusted and dull and wasn't the basket now moldy and overgrown with weeds and mushrooms she stood up and made her way towards her grandmother's house on the far side of the woods Now in time, this young girl grew old. She was a young woman, and then she was a wise woman about town. Still not older than her elders, but old enough to know what she wanted, and old enough to know how to get it. Everyone in her town came to her for all their problems. She could help them. She could help them find medicines that they might need, find cures that they might be after, find tools which might be lost in the fields. They would come into her stall, she would brew them some tea, and she would listen, and she would listen. And she would listen. And when the pot of tea was done, she would stand up, make her way to her counters, pull out a small paper bag, and fill it with strange herbs from jars. Those who could would pay. Those who couldn't, other arrangements were made. In time, the woman met a man she admired, and they spent many days talking and dancing and laughing. One day, they went for a walk through the woods, and the young man, who knew nothing about the woods, would ask her all sorts of questions. What bird was that? And she would tell him. What mushroom is this? And she would tell him. What bug is this? And she would tell him. What's this plant? And absent-mindedly, she told him. Why that plant? That's mugwort. With that, 
all the knowledge, all the lore, all the legends were lost. Since that day, the name of Mugwort, of the Artemisia family, Chernobyl, became known as the herbs of forgetting. So when I used to tell that story, it was often about the mugwort. It was often about the plant. And I love that plant. It appeals to my sense of mystery and wonder and depth of spirit. It's a dreaming plant. It's a plant that... Uh, it's, it's often called crone war. It's a plant that supports uh, hormone regulation. Maybe suitable for menopause. And while I used to think of it as a story about mugwort and the beauty of that, now I think of it more as a story about the snakes and about our learning from the snakes, from the wild worlds around us. And snakes, I think for me being such a difficult jump from when I was younger, not liking them, to now appreciating them. These stories of recognition of worth and value and lore and mystery around snakes are pretty special. While I say this, I think also, oh yeah, the mugwort must be special too, as a, as a plant for dreaming and hey, I used to dream terrible things about these snakes, and now with this story about mugwort, I'm getting over that fear. I'm forgetting that fear. Maybe I just need to unravel all these, all these ropes of connection throughout the story and just stick to one. But I love these stories. I love how stories teach us different things about the land. How they shape what we know. If you know any good stories about plants, about animals that really move you and you think have that specific sort of mythopoetic quality, feel free to share them. Not only with me, with your friends and family, any, anyone you know. But if you want to share them with me, you can email me at toknowtheland at gmail.com toknowtheland at gmail.com 
And I finally went and built a website to knowtheland.com. You can check out the other one, to knowtheland.tumblr.com. But yeah, to knowtheland.com will get you there. Thanks for listening.